you would open up with me to John chapter 20. A while back I was reading and teaching through the book of Acts and something in its pages struck me that I had never really noticed before. When I preach the gospel, I spend the majority of my time and my attention on the death of Jesus Christ, trying to answer the question, why was the death of Christ necessary? What actually happened at the cross? How can a sinner receive the benefits of Christ's atoning death? You, you might say that I have a very cross-centered view or approach to evangelism. And, and I don't think that that's wrong. As you look into the New Testament epistles, you will find them to be very cross-centered as well. Paul, in particular, had an extremely cross-centered view of all of theology. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. Paul referred to his gospel simply as the word of the cross. But when I was reading through the book of Acts again, I noticed that the emphasis of the earliest apostolic preaching centered upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ with only passing attention really given to to his death. And I, I suspect that this was because it took the apostles some time under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to really work out all that had happened when Jesus had died upon the cross, to work out a detailed theology of the death of Christ. But it took them no time at all to understand what His resurrection meant. That God had made Him both Lord and Christ. And that everyone who believes in His name receives the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. So if you would stay in John 20 and turn over just a few pages, I want to show you what I mean from just the beginning chapters of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, when the apostles cast lots in order to see who would replace Judas as one of the twelve, Peter explained to them that, This man must be a disciple who had walked with Jesus from the day of his baptism by John to the day of his ascension. And look what he says in verse 22. One of these must become a witness with us, not of his death, but of his resurrection. That's how the apostles first saw themselves and viewed themselves. They were witnesses and heralds of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Acts chapter 2. When Peter preaches his famous Pentecost sermon, the majority of the message focuses upon the fact that Christ, just 50 days ago, has been raised from the dead. Look at verse 23. He says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he proceeded to point to a host of Old Testament texts that foretold of the resurrection of the coming Messiah, saying again in verse 32, This Jesus, 
foretold in these Old Testament texts, God has raised up again to which we are all witnesses. And you get, again, you see that Peter saw himself, the disciples viewed themselves first and foremost as witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. Acts 3, you find more of the same. Peter says to the Jews, but you disown the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but you put to death the prince of life. The one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgivenesses or forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. If you turn over to Acts chapter 13, we find the earliest examples of the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Acts 13, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. From the dead. Finally, in Acts 17, Paul on Mars Hill in Athens concludes his sermon by saying, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The gospel message would come in time to be known as the word of the cross. As the apostles were granted by the Holy Spirit a detailed theology of the atonement. But from the earliest days, the apostles saw themselves as witnesses and heralds of the resurrection. The gospel was not yet the word of the cross. It was the word of the resurrection. That Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, has been raised from the dead, and that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. And though we now have that detailed theology of the death of Christ, thanks to these, these masterpieces known as the book of Romans or the book of Hebrews, and we now know exactly as far as we can what was transpiring between the Father and the Son there on the cross of Golgotha, The resurrection of Jesus remains the essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Such that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. He doesn't say, if Christ has not been crucified, your faith is worthless. He says, if Christ was crucified and yet not raised... Your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Where do you think Paul thought the hinge turned? Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everything turns on the resurrection of the Son of God. Which is why we are giving not one but two weeks to John chapter 20, 
walking through the five encounters that people had with the risen Lord Jesus, seeing what each has to teach us about the relationship between the resurrection of Christ and the faith that saves. The first encounter that we looked at last week from John chapter 20 verses 1 through 10 occurred between Peter and John and not the risen Christ, but the empty tomb. And from this encounter, I pointed out that faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a reasonable faith. It is a faith which is based upon and rooted in solid historical evidence. And I got that from verse 8, John chapter 20 and verse 8, where it says, So the other disciple, that is John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and look, and he saw and he believed. He saw and he believed. What did he see? He saw an empty tomb. He saw grave clothes lying there with no body. And he saw a face shroud neatly rolled up and placed to the side. He entered, he saw, and he concluded this was not a grave robbery. The tomb is empty and he's not here and no one stole him or else they'd have taken his clothes with him. He must have been raised. So we took that And we spent some time looking very briefly at some of the historical evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All meant to point to this fact, that faith in the resurrection of the Son of God is not some irrational leap in the dark. There is every reason to believe that Christ was raised on the third day. Encounter number two took place between the risen Christ and Mary Magdalene in verses 11 to 18. From that encounter, we learn that faith in the risen Lord Jesus is a supernatural faith. And we just just meditated on the fact that Mary, of all people, wanted to believe that Jesus was raised. She wanted to, but she couldn't. She could not believe. Even when she saw two angels dressed in white, seated where the body of Jesus had been laid, She could not believe. Even when she turned around and she saw the gardener, whom she thought was the gardener, she did not recognize him to be the Lord Jesus. In fact, it was not until Jesus spoke. More than that, it was not until he called her by name, sovereignly, effectually, giving life, giving faith, that she recognized Jesus for who he was and believed And rejoiced. The good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep and has authority to lay it down and authority to take it back up again. He is alive forevermore and he is calling his sheep by name and he is leading them out of the sheepfold of this world and leading them and they shall be one flock under one shepherd. John chapter 10. That's exactly what he's doing with Mary. He calls them by name because faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, saving faith, is supernaturally given. Encounter number three takes place between the risen Lord Jesus and his disciples there in the locked room. So when it was evening on that day, we begin in verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace, be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his, his hands and his side. 
And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. If grief was the overwhelming emotion demonstrated by Mary, it was fear that was dominating these disciples after Jesus' death. They must have thought that if they killed the master, they're going to be coming for his followers too. And so I imagine them spending Friday night and Saturday and into, Saturday and into Sunday just, just cowering in fear behind the locked doors, waiting to hear the sound of soldiers' feet coming down the street in order to drag them away. But then suddenly there he is, just in their midst. And he pronounces to them one word, shalom. Peace. Just a few nights earlier in John 14, he says, my peace, I promise you, my peace, I leave with you. Paul says in Romans 5.1 that therefore being justified by faith, we have peace. Jesus died and has been raised in order that we might have peace. Peace with God. And I think that's why Jesus greets them in that way. He says, what I promised you, what I died to secure, is now yours. I pronounce it as the risen Lord and King. Let there be peace in your hearts because there is peace between you and God. And then he showed them his hands and his side. Still bearing the marks of the nails and the mark of the spear. And so it was at the sight and the voice of the risen Lord that the disciples' fear and their, and their grief melts away into joy. Verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, They have been retained. Three things happen in very quick succession in these verses, and I want to point them out to you. Number one, the risen Christ commissioned his disciples. He commissioned them, and he sent them into the world to testify to his death and resurrection. Remember, that's how the disciples viewed themselves. They were witnesses and heralds of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, they understood that Jesus had sent them into the world not primarily to build schools and to build hospitals and to build church buildings or to campaign for political candidates or for political causes. Not primarily. He had sent them into the world for a purpose, and that purpose was to declare that he who is dead is alive forevermore and that forgiveness of sins and everlasting life are available through faith in his name. That's what he sent them to do. That's what missions does. It tells people that Christ has been crucified for sinners and that he is risen from the dead and that anyone who will repent and trust in him will receive the forgiveness of sins and will live forever. So he commissioned them. Second, he empowered them. It's fascinating. Oh, I love this verse. He breathed on them. If you're a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll love that verse too. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a verse which has engendered a great deal of debate, as you can probably imagine. It's only recorded here in John's Gospel. The question is this. 
here's the confusion, and it's understandable. Is Jesus bestowing the Holy Spirit upon his disciples here? Because I thought that's what he did 50 days later at Pentecost. You see? I mean, how, how do we reconcile John 20 with Acts 2? Well, for reasons that would take us well beyond the scope of our discussion this morning, I just want to tell you the way that I think is the best to interpret this verse. I think that Jesus, in connection with the great commission he's just given them, is given, giving them an object lesson for what is the power to fulfill that commission. When Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, it was a prelude to what would happen 50 days later at Pentecost. In both the Hebrew and the Greek language, the word for breath and spirit are one and the same. Nefesh in Hebrew, pneuma in Greek. And so you get this idea, John's writing it here so that we would see he's breathing on them and the spirit is proceeding from the sun to them. And he's showing them what is going to happen on the day of Pentecost. That's exactly what happened when they were gathered around in the upper room. After Jesus' ascension, Jesus breathed upon his church. And like a mighty rushing wind, the Holy Spirit swept into the room and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they received power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they became his witnesses so he commissioned them and then he empowered them and finally he authorized them he said if you forgive the sins of any their sins have been forgiven if you retain the sins of any they have been retained whoa does that make anyone uncomfortable we have the keys to the kingdom like that Did Jesus just delegate to his disciples the authority to forgive sins or to not forgive sins? This is what it looks like. But everywhere in Scripture, including Luke chapter 5, the testimony of the Word of God is that that is an authority possessed only by God himself, which is why Jesus got himself in so much trouble. Because he claimed authority on earth to forgive sins and everybody knew no one has that authority but God himself. So what is he saying? Well, were this the only verse in the Bible that taught on the forgiveness of sins, we might legitimately think that we have the power to say, forgiven, forgiven, not forgiven, forgiven, right? But it's not the only verse in the Bible on the forgiveness of sins, not by a long shot. We live by the analogy of faith. We compare Scripture with Scripture. And when we do that, here I think is what we come up with as the proper way to interpret this verse. John chapter 20, verses 21 to 23, is John's version of the Great Commission. The Great Commission appears in all four Gospels in slightly different forms, but bearing all of the same essential characteristics. So I just want to walk them through. I believe they'll be up on the screen behind me. Just look and see if you recognize the similarities. And that's going to help us interpret John's Great Commission in light of Matthew, Mark's, and Luke's. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. (sighs) 
Get it? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who disbelieves shall be condemned. Luke chapter 24, verses 45 to 49. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins, catch that, repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. (sighs) But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. When we compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the great commissions found in those with John 20, you're going to see these same essential elements. Number one, Jesus sends his disciples into all nations. It's a global commission, right? Number two, he sends them with a message. He says, go and preach and teach the gospel. What is the substance of this gospel? It's the good news of the forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ received by repentance and faith. Let me run that by you again. Go into all the world and tell them that forgiveness of sins and everlasting life is available because of what Jesus has done if They repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Third, he sends his disciples out to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And fourth, he sends them out clothed with power. He breathes on them. Fills them with the Holy Spirit. So we come back to John 20, 23. Compare it with the other great commissions And I think that we see that Jesus is not delegating to his disciples the authority for judgment as if we get to decide who's forgiven and who is not. Rather, he's talking about the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, which declares that the forgiveness of sins comes through faith in Jesus Christ. For those who receive the gospel of Christ, for those who receive the gospel through repentance and faith, God has already forgiven their sins. Notice, okay, grammar geeks, notice the perfect passive verses of, I say that with love, love you, grammar geeks, we're tight. All right, perfect passive, your sins have been forgiven. To anyone who will believe the message of the gospel, their sins have been forgiven. But to anyone who rejects the message of the gospel, their sins have not been forgiven and will bring them into judgment. Their sins are retained. So when we preach the gospel, when you share the gospel across the kitchen table or or across the living room or across the ocean, when you share the gospel, you are proclaiming the forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have all authority in heaven on earth to look at the one who believes and say, your sins, beloved, they're wiped away. And you have the authority to sit across the living room from someone who will not hear and will not accept and say, your sins are still on your head. And the wrath of God abides on you. You 
are sent out with an authority possessed by ambassadors of the king. And it's the king who says, forgiven, condemned. You're just speaking what he's already spoken. To the one who believes, forgiven. To the one who condemn, or disbelieves, condemned. So what are, we, what are we drawing from this encounter? Faith in the resurrection of Christ is a missional faith. It is a faith which receives not only the forgiveness of sins, but also a divine commission to preach the forgiveness of sins, to proclaim, to share the forgiveness of sins through faith in the gospel of Christ. And the rest of the Bible especially in the book of Acts, makes clear that the early church did not understand this commission as given to the twelve only. They understood this commission as given to the church as a whole. You, believer, you are commissioned, you are empowered, and you are authorized to preach the gospel. Does it not send chills up your spine that you are clothed with power from on high with a message from the king? Forgiven. The whole church believed itself to be commissioned by the risen Christ to proclaim the gospel and the whole church participated in the mission to take that gospel to the nations. To be a believer is to be a witness of his death and resurrection. Application time. Examination time. Do you have a missional faith? Do you have a faith worth sharing? Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are commissioned, empowered, and authorized to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Fourth encounter. Takes place between Thomas and the risen Christ. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Most of us probably know Thomas better by his nickname, which is Doubting Thomas. I'm going to submit to you, I don't think that's very fair. I think he's gotten something of a bad rap. Thomas seems, yes, like some other people I know, to be possessed of a pessimistic personality, sort of a glass-half-empty type of guy. I remember when Jesus is going to Cana in order to raise Lazarus. You know, he's going right back to the very border of Jerusalem, and people are in Jerusalem that want him dead. And Thomas says, well, I guess we should all go and die with him, right? It just seems to have been his personality. But you tell me, with the exception of John, which of the other disciples believed without seeing? None. They all saw his hands. They all saw his side. They all saw the appearance of the risen Lord Christ. It's not as if the other disciples were the bastions of faith. 
I just think we ought to be a little kinder to our brother Thomas. No one believes in the risen Christ apart from his effectual call and the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. But, Jesus is exceedingly gracious, isn't he? Merciful with his sheep, tender with his sheep, meeting them, us, where we are with what we need, bringing us sometimes violently and sometimes gently to himself. Just dealing with us individually as each of us individually needs because your shepherd knows you and he loves you. And he knows and he loves Thomas. So it says in verse 26, after eight days his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst and he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, just turns right to him. Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but be believing. After eight days, would by Jewish reckoning put them on the following Sunday. Jesus came again through locked doors, stood in their midst, says shalom to them. Then he looks right at Thomas and deals with Thomas as an individual. I like what James Montgomery Boyce wrote on this note. Just listen to what he says. He says, how gracious our God is. We have no right to demand anything of him. I won't believe until I see his hands and see his side. We have no right to say anything like that. But, yet he who has created us and has died to redeem us stoops to provide us with what we need. Do you need evidence? If we do and if we will approach the matter honestly, we will find the proof of his deity his death for sinners, his resurrection, and his promised return overwhelming. Do you say, but I don't see it? Then come to him. Ask for evidence. You will find that God who is far more anxious to reveal himself to you than you are to find him will provide you with the revelation you need. What he's saying is that you, if you, ensnared by nagging doubts, Skeptical, but honest. Honestly skeptical. If you will honestly seek the truth, God will meet you with the evidence that you need because honest questions receive honest answers. How do I know? I've got a theological foundation for that statement. If you are seeking the truth, it means that he who is the truth is himself seeking you. And Jesus finds what he seeks. And he saves what he finds. And he draws those whom he calls such that they come to him, all of them, and he raises them up on the last day. That's John 14, 6, 637 and 644. If you are seeking the truth, the truth is seeking you and he will find you. Because he's not hiding. We're not told whether, whether Thomas actually took up Jesus' challenge and touched his hands and touched his side. I think the impression of the text is that he didn't need to. All he needed was the, was the word. All he needed was to hear Jesus' voice. 
And at the sight of the crucified and risen Lord, still bearing the marks of his atoning death, and at the command of Christ, listen, believe, Thomas was undone. Doubt, fear, disappointment, just melting away into joy. I like to imagine the text, and I imagine Thomas just standing there with trembling hands and saying, it's true. It's all true. And in his love and out of his joy, he utters the single greatest confession of faith anywhere in Scripture. My Lord and my God. And therein lies the point of this fourth encounter of John 20 between the risen Lord Jesus and Thomas. Faith in the resurrection of Christ is a theological faith. It is a faith which recognizes Jesus for who He is, both Lord and God. I sometimes marvel at how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and how the Jehovah's Witnesses can affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ and yet deny His deity, His identity as God. Look at what is happening and compare it with Scripture. Every other time in Scripture when someone tries to worship something that is not God, they get rebuked. John tried twice in the book of Revelation. And they said, stand up. Don't do that because they know, the angels know, exalted men or whatever it is they believe about Jesus, they know that no one is deserving of worship but Him. And what does Jesus do? Let me tell you what He does not do. He does not say, stand up, Thomas. No, no, you don't understand. He receives His worship. He affirms that what Thomas has just confessed is true. You're right, Thomas. I am Lord. And I am God. No rebuke. Rather, he affirms Thomas's faith and he pronounces a blessing on all those who likewise believe in him as Lord and God. Verse 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Note that this is a personal confession of faith, since we're talking theology. Sometimes people like to separate theology from experience as if I can believe certain things, but it doesn't have much of a transformative effect on my life. There is no such distinction in Scripture. Personal faith is a theological faith. If a theological faith is not personal, it's not real faith. If a personal faith is not theological, it's not real faith. Together, my Lord, my God. He is, in that moment, personally surrendering to the Lordship of Christ and to His divine sovereignty and identity. And in a split second, you can see the wires connecting in His heart and in His mind. This Jesus with whom He had spent the previous three years, this rabbi at whose feet he had listened to him time and again teach. This healer who, who spoke a word and the sick were made well and spoke a word and the demons fled from his presence and spoke a word and the dead got back up to life. This Jesus is both Lord and God. No, he is my Lord and my God and I'm following him to the end. And he did, by the way. He died a martyr's death over in India preaching the gospel where it was not known. 
That is the response. This is the response of any heart awakened by the Holy Spirit to see the resurrection of the Son of God. My Lord and my God. Have you said that to Jesus? Have you fallen before Him and said, My Lord and my God. In complete surrender of allegiance. Saving faith is a theological faith. Lastly, in response to Thomas's confession, Jesus says, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Which leads us into the last encounter of John 20. And it occurs between the risen Lord Jesus and those who have not seen. Those who are not eyewitnesses of his resurrection. Jesus is talking about you, beloved He is blessing you. He is blessing you and all of those who have believed on him, not by seeing, but by the word of those who did see. Verse 30, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul names some 514 eyewitnesses of the resurrection and ascension of Christ. They're not the ones blessed in verse 29. This blessing is for those who will believe through the sacred word of Scripture which is the way that God brings people to saving faith today. For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So listen to me, anyone who who is here who may be unbelieving, anyone, look up here. The risen Lord Jesus is probably not, he's not going to appear in your locked room tonight. He's not going to come inside your your enclosed walls, enter through your locked doors, and show you his hands and show you his side. He's not going to do it. So what do you do? You encounter the risen Christ in his word. And if you believe the word, you are blessed. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a biblical faith. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a biblical faith, a faith that arises out of the word of the gospel. This, John says, this is why I wrote my gospel. Do you see the connection? The therefore, it's an important word. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John comes in with his editorial comment. He says, therefore, because Jesus is blessing those who who don't see and yet believe, that's why I wrote. I could have pulled any number of stories out of these three years, but I put these stories together, put them in this book. It is being preached to you today in April of 2015 so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believe, have life, be blessed. That's why John wrote the gospel. That's why we're here today preaching. Believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. 
the signs given in John's gospel, preeminent of which is the resurrection of the Son of God, were written down that you may believe, that you may see the words on the page and hear them as they're preached and that the Holy Spirit would come and would open your eyes and enlighten your minds and breathe life into your souls and that you would see and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This was written and this was preached in order that the good shepherd who knows his sheep and calls them by name would, through my preaching, call you by name by name, by name, and call you out of the world and call you to himself so that you would live and believe and be blessed forever. It is a biblical faith. This, this is how you encounter Jesus. This is a powerful word. This is an inspired word. This is a divine word. This is a life giving, faith-producing, dead-raising, doubt-destroying, good-shepherd-calling word. Believe it. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a reasonable faith, founded upon solid and sufficient historical evidence. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a supernatural faith, awakened in us by the call of the good shepherd. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a missional faith. It comes along with the privilege and the responsibility of being commissioned, empowered, and authorized to be the representatives of the king and to spread his message among the nations. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a theological faith. It is rooted and grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It knows who he is and what he has done and surrendered personally to him. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a biblical faith arising out of the sacred text of Scripture. Do you believe? You believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who was crucified for your sins and raised on the third day? Do you believe that? You must believe that or you do not have life. You must believe that or you are still in your sins. You must believe that or you will not be saved in the day of wrath that is to come. You must believe. So believe. May the sovereign good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep and raises it up again by his own power and authority, may he call you by name that you may believe, that you may see, that you may love, that you may cling to him and embrace him, and that you may live. Hear, believe, live.